It's Nostasa Pod. Questions and answers. But before we get to that, let's play a little recap. Let's catch up. Uh, as of the recording of this, there was just an enormous drop on onelldesign.com. Uh, the theme seemed to be orange, which is great. Orange is a fantastic color. Uh, so many different emotive uh, hues you can pull from. And I really dig the color story and the efforts of Dowdy and his team on this drop. I hope you guys checked it out. You should definitely be picking some of those figures up. Now, I have the uh, the very difficult task of following uh, an Onel drop with what I consider to be a small, concise, uh, straight-to-the-point selection of figures that I've been dying to release for a very long time. And this includes what I consider to be the very best classic night ever released. But... I don't know if by the time you're listening to this, it's already out there in the ether. So I guess the less I say, the better. I don't want to spoil it for certain people. But um, very exciting time to be a Glyos and a Knight of the Slice collector, to be sure. It's also worth noting the brand new comic story that goes along with my drop for this week, which I'm calling Light versus Death. Uh, I nearly broke myself uh, doing the artwork. I, I typically do very quick artwork and don't spend a lot of time on it. This was the exception. I was really thinking about this story for a long time and uh, hit a good stride with Procreate. And unfortunately, when I draw, especially on an iPad, I have terrible posture and I do it in such bad positions and uh, seem to have put a kink in my back. But uh, hopefully, I'll get that massaged out and be feeling better. But I just wanted everyone to know uh, I should be. I guess charging more because there is a, a health implication for the artwork I'm putting together. Uh, I truly am suffering for you. I'm nailed to this cross up here, uh, but I do it for the squires because I love all of you. Now, getting to the questions of the week, uh, I got to tell you, I, I like to highlight a single question typically and focus on that and spend some time. This week, almost every question was like a question of the week. Just really fantastic really good questions, and it was kind of hard to pick one to hone in on, but, uh, boy, I like this one coming in from our friend Bunny all the way across the pond, and he says, this is meant in the most lighthearted way possible, and only because he's guilty of both. What's more annoying, people requesting figures in homage colors or requesting figures in colorways from other Lyos lines? This is a very, very good question, and this is uh, a big part of the discourse online. Uh, a lot of the discussion, or a lot of the questions I field, are about homage colors. Um, and and look, I think this is kind of lighthearted is the right tone here, because I'm lucky that anybody's discussing any of my work, right? I'm lucky that people have an opinion or have any requests. Most of, uh, you know, a creative output from anybody just goes simply unremarked upon and unnoticed. So while, you know, on certain days I may be annoyed by these phenomenon or the constant repeat questions, uh, I do also recognize I'm in a pretty privileged position here because there are people that actually consume and think about and, and want to engage with my work. And uh, that has not been the case for the majority of my life. So even if it is uh, slightly annoying, if I confess to that, I'm still happy to be annoyed in this manner and that people uh, have any interest whatsoever. So uh, with that disclaimer out of the way, I think actually uh, I understand people's requests for me to do 
color styles from the O'Neill collection or from other Glyos makers. I think that's that's a legitimate request uh, because they do great work, especially Matt Dowdy and O'Neill. I mean, he has put me to shame so many times over on our collaboration figures because his color theory and his color game are just preposterously strong. You know, the, the combos he comes up with are mind-melting sometimes. So, um, you know, I, I, I'm... I think it's quite a compliment that people would like to see my figures utilize uh, very famous color schemes and things of that nature. Uh, however, if you've hung around and you've spent any time with the Squires of the Slice in this brother and sisterhood of ours, uh, you know that I, <laughs> the, the rule used to be I avoid all homage. That is very much not the case this year. We're kind of going for broke. Um, I really don't utilize color schemes from other Glyos makers. And if I do, uh, it's either A, unintentional, or B, there's sort of a new spin put on it in some respects. So um, part of that is like, I want to respect those creators. I want to respect, you know, O'Neill design proper. And I don't want to tread where they've tread before. I, I think. Uh, this is something I kind of harp on a lot, but it's like your designs have to stand on their own, right? Y you should not lean on context for other people's creative output to define who you are as an artist or, or what you're putting out there into the world. So part of it is sort of, I'm hesitant to remind anybody too much of any one thing because that does distract from my own voice, my own point of view, or the fingerprint I'm trying to leave on these things. Now, when it comes to traditional homages that are used or overused uh, within the independent toy world, I would say, you know, those requests are less interesting to me. And more often than not, I'm not hearing any new requests. I, I think if you look strategically at where I do indulge myself in homages, mostly, now there are exceptions, of course, but mostly... I am picking things that I would like in a toy form that maybe have never been done that way. Or, uh, you know, I, I look to the action figure of the millennia, uh, January and February figures. Now, obviously, only uh, February, Adam Boy was a slight homage, a love letter, if you will. But it was sort of different enough, and there is a history with the character. And really, you know, I can't point to a perfect my version of that character within the four and four quarter, uh, three and three quarter inch, four inch scale. Um, now, with all this being said, again, I do have some pretty indulgent homages coming this year where I'm just saying, fuck it. You know, wouldn't this be fun? Let's have a little fun here. Uh, let's see if people react to it. And, uh, you know, It'll be interesting to see if there's any response to this. I, I am sort of loosening the reins in some respects uh, to kind of play in a familiar vibe sandbox, if you will. One final note I'll put out there. Uh, I do think it is worth noting that the recent Lance Mofo Hunter figure was not a creation of mine. Let's keep that in mind. This is a Most Toys release. I know the lines get a little bit obscured there, but uh, that is a Mark Mosman design. Uh, also, big shout out to Ben Minenberg, who did the paint master for that figure. I don't think we could have pulled off that complex of a deco 
without Ben's guiding force. So thank you for that. Um, also, I saw a little bit of chatter going on about the separation of the coat from the figure itself. So I thought, hey, why not clarify that? Uh, if you go and you look at what little reference there is for costumes of whatever this homage may be, not confirming or denying anything, you will find that uh, the character in question does have a salmon-colored blazer underneath his more famous dark brown giant trench coat. Uh, now, when it came to putting these items on the store, the figure Lance is a most toys release, and the jacket was not. That is manufactured by me, and thusly the reporting had to be separate. I have to generate a report for most toys, and I have to show which of their items sold. If I combine the two items, I have to do additional math and separate out a bunch of numbers, and that's not very fun. So that is why the blazer is colored the way it is, and that is why the jacket is a separate item. So hopefully that shines some light into the rather mundane and mysterious ways of uh, the back end for e-commerce. Next up, I got our second question of the week here, because I think it is that good and, and merits uh, some time spent with it. And that's from Ian Amling. And he says, do you think there's a similarity between collecting and addictive slash compulsive behavior? This is a fantastic question. This is something I think about quite a bit. And uh, it kind of uh, comes full circle with a lot of how I've been viewing collecting lately and... Um, the sort of evolution of my thought process about that. As far as I'm concerned, there is absolutely a correlation between uh, collecting, specifically I would say adult action figure collecting, and compulsive or uh, addictive traits or uh, attachments, let's say. Now, I don't want to sort of end the prognosis there because I think it's very important to understand the material context in which we find ourselves here today. Because, um, yes, I do think that, like, uh, being a completist or getting, you know, physically sick about missing out on a drop or uh, every single day going to a different store as soon as they open to see the new stock, all of this, by the way, uh, you know, behavior I have certainly engaged in, I think all of this is, um, it, it's sort of too easy to write it off as a, as a sort of mental deficiency, right? I, I do think there is obviously some people who tend more towards obsessive compulsive behavior that are in the hobby. I think there's, you know, uh, this can absolutely be an addiction for some people. And I do think that there is a, there's absolutely a, a sort of, mental complex, it's not really a gracious way to say it, but I do think there is a psychological uh, component to collecting. And I think everybody has it in different levels. And for some people, collecting may be a, a completely blissful pursuit. And for others, it is a miserable pursuit. And I think we've all seen the people that seem to be miserable collecting these lines or these toys uh, but continue to do it with such aplomb and such carelessness 
Uh, they really lack any ability to look inward and be like, is this actually making me happy? Do I want to spend all my time and money doing this? Uh, so granted, there's a psychological aspect to collecting. Sometimes it can veer towards the negative, but I would say the bigger uh, enforcement of this behavior is just the world in which we find ourselves in the year of 2023, especially in the United States. The classification of the subspecies of human beings living in the United States in the year 2023 is best described as a consumer, and that's it. That is the be-all, end-all of the power of a modern living person within the confines of the world as we find it today, particularly in North America, particularly in America itself. You and I and everyone else, we are consumers. That is the the limit to our power in life, our ability to affect greater things, our ability to bring about change, our ability to have a consensus and put action towards that, it all exists within the consumer context. Regardless of your sort of personal political leanings to anybody listening to this, I think you would, I would venture to guess we can probably agree on some bigger issues and have a consensus and like to see the government sort of take action in order to fulfill those things. Maybe it's Medicare for all, maybe not. I know I'm harping on and on about that. And uh, I'm sure I've convinced a few people that that is the way, but um, maybe it's something much more basic like uh, social media companies shouldn't be turning over our private messages to law enforcement and government officials without warrants, which is absolutely happening and has been happening for quite some time. There is a there is a litany of things we could all probably agree on. And I don't think any of us would say life is heading in a really fantastic direction. And I don't think any of us would say that the government is doing things correctly. I think regardless of how you vote, uh, we would probably all agree shit's pretty bad and nobody seems to be taking any action regardless of the direction we think it should be going. The reason for all that is that we are just consumers and the people in the government are also trapped in that matrix. They are only consumers. They have to serve their patrons, their big donors, the big tech companies that, you know, fill their uh, campaign coffers. They too are sort of victim and humbled by this consumer consciousness. That's why every aspect of our lives seems to be frozen in place at the end of the 20th century, despite the fact we are 20 plus years into a new century with uh, a, a much bigger demand for change in order for us to frankly survive as a species. Now the genesis point of this is two pretty important things that happened. One, Nixon opening up relations with China and our manufacturing sectors starting to matriculate over there. and Carter deregulating credit cards and how they work and how much household debt families could take on. These two things that happened, which by the way, were, you know, a decade before I was even born and probably a decade or two for most of you listening to this. These are the two sort of strikings of the match that gave us the very beginnings of our consumer society. The debt that American households could now take on through deregulation of credit cards helped fuel the 80s 
and the idea of buying more and more stuff, more luxury items that the average person just working one job could have little bits of luxury. And they didn't even have to have the cash for it. They could use a credit card. And with Nixon sidestepping Taiwan, where a lot of things were manufactured prior to the mid to late 70s, uh, and going to China, if you want any proof of this, just look at your late 70s, early 80s toys. Uh, they start to become more and more stamped with made in China, not made in Taiwan. Uh, we could also have cheaper goods that are unlimited, seemingly unlimited, credit cards would allow us to purchase. From there, with those two inciting incidences, you have the seeding of real political power uh, dripping out of daily life and the action that an average citizen could take. In place of that, the offer was, well, you can buy more things, you can have more luxury, you can have a bigger house, you can have a McMansion, you can have two cars, you can put it all on credit. That was the sort of deal. You know, the, the late 60s, early 70s, and the sort of, you know, the hippie culture that got us things like the Civil Rights Act, they were all placated by this promise of consumerism. Whether or not they sort of knew it was happening or were sort of complicit in it happening, those are all of our parents, and we were all raised as the second generation of this new world order where everybody had credit card debt, but everybody had an in-ground swimming pool. And the levers of power slowly got obscured from us, hidden behind a curtain. You guys just focus on what you're buying, what brands bring meaning to your life, and we will focus on national security and running the company and running the United States. The third inciting incident is obviously, as I've talked about before, the fall of Russia. And that vilifying, or rather, that sort of authenticating this idea of American exceptionalism and consumerism. And, uh, you know, we've talked about Francis Fukuyama before, the end of history, right? This concept that we had figured it all out. You just need to be able to buy a lot of cheap goods and everybody's standard of living would be on the rise and it would be unfaltering. And with the slaying of the communist menace, uh, that was proof of concept. A few years prior to that, we have Reagan, of course, repealing children's programming uh, regulations and that allowing the slew of early 80s cartoon toy commercials to infuse all of our brains every single Saturday morning with the urge to go and buy. So if you take into account these massive, massive events that happened within the span of 40 to 50 years that shaped not just life in the U.S., but really the global capitalist uh, sort of idea, our actions as modern-day collectors in the year 2023 are somewhat predetermined, right? We grew up every morning eating the sugary cereals, being marketed to, going to the store afterwards, putting on credit cards, the Ewok Village or whatever the, the new toy might be of the week. And we grew up for decades with this cycle just repeating itself. You feel bad about spending too much, 
you need a little rush, so you buy a little more and you feel a little bit of excitement. But it's a cycle that kind of feeds into itself. So I would say that uh, it is useful to understand there is certainly a psychological component to people in this hobby. I think the larger elephant in the room is that this is almost a predetermined thing. You are going along with the global world order when you purchase something, when you endlessly exist as only a consumer. And so I don't think it's very useful to have any guilt about that. You are literally a, a single individual in a world of billions of people who engage in a system like this, where the material conditions are baked in. We're just doing what everybody else has been doing for decades and what every structure of power has reinforced since before we were born. What choice do we have but to sort of obsessively collect things? So I really don't want people to sort of beat themselves up for their collecting habits. I don't think it's useful, and I don't think largely it's your fault. I think that we are living at a moment in time where every piece of positive stimulus that is delivered to us has been shaped through these much bigger events. So let's just sort of like relieve ourselves from the guilt of being a consumer plugged into this giant matrix because we didn't opt for this, we didn't choose this life for ourselves, and largely the political action we can take in this life is just picking Budweiser versus non-Budweiser, right? That is the, the extent of how we can express ourselves and our politics. So what's the solution to, uh, to this diagnosis, right? I have found a couple things work here. One is I'm not going to be guilty about the things I buy or the things I enjoy. But I am going to take a hard look at, am I just buying something, going through the motions, or is this something I genuinely like or will give me a good experience? I think that's an important part of having a sort of healthier balance to this. Uh, I think also, if your entire life is being online and discussing toys and going to toy stores, I would encourage you to expand your life to contain non-digital things, such as, I don't know, gardening, uh, pruning a bonsai tree, <laughs> you know, go, going for a walk, drawing. Uh, I, I think having a much more diverse set of stimuli in your life is super important, and I think other people are a gigantic piece of that. Uh, every month, I go to Club Draw, and I play a little music, and I sit with my friends, and we eat ramen, and afterwards, I feel elated, because I wasn't on my phone. There's very bad cell service in that, in Quinn's, and I was just there in the moment, and it was... It was just existing. And so the more days like that I can stack up, the more I actually enjoy when me and my friends get together and we take a little road trip and we go to a toy store and, you know, we splurge a little bit. In the periods of my life where all I did was get up and go to a toy store on my lunch break and buy a bunch of stuff and go home and then order more stuff on Amazon and finally have the weekends to kind of unpack everything and I didn't have much of a love life, didn't have much of a, you know, a friend circle. Those are pretty bleak, miserable years. And so we can't get over being consumers, 
And I don't think that depriving yourself of a hobby that brings joy is going to do anything positive for you or for the bigger world. But I do think having a more varied experience in your life is a good way to feel better about collecting. In many respects, I'm not trying to sort of shill myself here because I'm, I'm preaching to the choir, but I think I have tried my best to cultivate an experience around Knights of the Slice and Toy Pizza that provides positivity outside of just a purchase. You know, I think we have a great community. Uh, I'm always inspired when I see other Squires of the Slice working together, building something, doing 3D printing, doing sculpting together, uh, sharing their sketchbooks, sharing their drawings. Like, I love seeing all of that stuff. And I think that it exists within our hobby because we have sort of set out to cultivate something that's nice and that's positive and, and there's a connection amongst other people. If you ever want to see the anti-example of what we do with Knights of the Slice, I would say uh, follow the Mezco Facebook group. My God, it doesn't seem like anybody's particularly happy to be collecting any of the Mezco lines. And also, I don't, it is a completely artless world. I don't see people sharing uh, any fan art. I don't see, I mean, maybe there's some toy photography. There's a few customizers that are doing interesting soft good stuff, but largely it is just a, a truly unhappy, artless existence. Uh, I think also, you know, uh, my brief time within the G.I. Joe and Micronauts fandom seems to be the same existence. It's like very unhappy, uh, you know, not a lot of people encouraging each other, a lot of infighting, a lot of, a lot of spats. Um, it's just, to me, it's pointless. Like, this should be a hobby of levity in many respects. And, uh, you know, it just, it leaves me scratching my head. But, but in any case, uh, to get back to the sort of question at hand, yes, I do think that there are, there are sort of psychological components and people that tend towards um, obsessive compulsive behavior or addictive behavior absolutely are susceptible to going down the rabbit hole in this hobby, for sure. But I do think there's a larger context of the global capitalist system being as it is and shaping, whether we know it or not, all of our daily behavior. And as conditions get worse in daily life, people's standards of living drop, purchasing something is really the only freedom we have left. And, you know, these arbitrary lines are constantly being drawn and reinforced by corporations and by news. If you look at the Bud Light controversy, you're either uh, a bigot or you support trans lives simply by the fact of drinking a Bud Light. How refreshing, how, you know, that is, uh, that is truly a beautiful symbolism that at the end of the day affects nobody's lives. So uh, I would say do away with the guilt about collecting. Try to only buy stuff that you're really going to like, you're really going to love. Don't be afraid to liquidate your collection every now and then. It can be a very refreshing feeling. Uh, get involved in the community around collecting if it's a good one. And be of service to other people. You know, send them something they missed out on. Give them a deal. Trade. Like all this stuff, I think, helps permeate a, a general good vibe to all of it. And final point in closing, 
Try to focus on independent creators. I know I'm saying this all the time. I know it sounds very self-serving, but the stuff I buy from independent makers always is more meaningful, and I, I love so much more than the stuff I buy in toy stores. And uh, if there's a comic you like reading, if there's an artist on Instagram you really dig, just find a way to support them. Patreon, coffee, whatever the case may be. The people that are outside of this system and independently creating content that makes us happy, it's up to us to kind of support them and toss a couple bucks their way and allow them to make more stuff that makes us happy. So that's my diagnosis. That's my prescription. I'm just some jerk off. You don't have to listen to any of this, but uh, those are the truths that I think have revealed themselves to me. Next up, we are heading over to patreon.com slash jessedestasio for our super secret and private patron-only question thread. And I got a good one here from Gordon McKinnon Hall. I've been listening through back episodes of Cam De Rosario and J.B. Rowe's podcast, Gutter Boys, and I just finished the one where they talked to Alexis Zirit. How did you get to know Alexis and get him to do the cover for the BLT ARC graphic novel? Uh, really great podcast, by the way. Everybody should be following Gutter Boys and supporting them on Patreon. Um, Alexis, if I'm not mistaken, uh, is a South Florida guy, and that's how I knew Alexis. I I do not, I, I don't want to confirm whether or not he went to AIFL or not, but it wouldn't surprise me if he did. But I was sort of aware of him tangentially from the same group of friends. The, the Art Institute of Fort Lauderdale, which, by the way, does not exist anymore. It has been sued out of existence by the federal government for defrauding students. But, hey, I still have the student loans from that. Isn't that nice? Your, your school can be uh, prosecuted uh, for fraud, go out of business, and you will still pay those student loans. I think that's a great deal. Absolutely. Um, the AIFL alumni, a really, really great contingent of artists existed for a time in the early aughts uh, in that little hemisphere. And they all went on, well, a lot of them went on to do really great stuff. Um, Alexis Eret, obviously, whether or not he's proper AIFL, he was sort of in this world. Uh, Drew Wise, friend of the pod, Drew Wise, who's, you know, uh, pound for pound, one of the best graphic designers out there. Natalie Koromoto, Instagram phenom. Uh, Natalie, by the way, just might be at Toy Pizza Con this year. She couldn't make it last year, uh, but uh, I think she's going to be there and set up, so that's pretty great. Uh, myself, uh, lots of other people. Siva Jack, oddly enough, like this, this great little collection of artists all went to this completely corrupt, bankrupt school, and... Uh, you know, a lot of the people that I've collaborated with over the years have been out of this little South Florida enclave. Um, I'm trying to think where Alexis and I got officially introduced, and I'm drawing a complete blank. But I do know he's been somebody that, you know, uh, I've been in touch with for years, especially through Toy Pizza. Um You know, as far as getting him to do the cover, I just simply reached out. Uh, asked him if he was interested, what he would charge, and um, he was absolutely uh, game. But it is worth noting that illustration 
was originally not for the cover of uh, that comic book. It was a illustration of Grasshopper Night. And um, it got sort of repurposed and reutilized. Um, so, you know, I'm very lucky to have worked with Alexis. He also has some really stellar card art in the um, Jagged Age campaign that's coming soon. So, uh, you know, J.B. Rowe also, really phenomenal artists. I, I see them both as being, having a similar uh, set of influences and aesthetics. Uh, J.B. Rowe's contributed a ton of work also to various projects. I, I think both those guys are really on the cutting edge. Uh, Alexis, by the way, is on Patreon, and you guys should be following him. He shows a lot of in-progress and process pictures that I find pretty interesting. So, uh, two great artists, great podcast to follow. Great question. Thank you. Next up from Timothy Wilkins. Uh, will we see a new hob in 2023? Um, I believe so. I think it's probably going to be at the tail end of the year. And I don't yet have decided what that hob is going to be. But um, I think he will be making an appearance uh, before too long. Recently, I did do a poll on Discord for should Hob be allowed to be a action figure of the Millennia club figure. And uh, it didn't get an overwhelmingly positive response. I think we had slight majority of people wanted to see Hob as part of the club, but a lot of people did not want to see Hob as part of the club. So uh, I am weighing that into my equation for how deep down the, the Hob hole we go this year. Next up from Brett Barnickel, in your opinion, what's the best fast food kids action, uh, sorry, best fast food kids meal action figure? The articulated Mario from Wendy's comes to mind for me. Honorable mention to the Burger King Backstreet Boys lineup. The, those Burger King Backstreet Boys are the chagrin of any tag sale or flea market hunter because those things are in every loose bin of toys. And you're literally beating them away with a bat to get to the good stuff. Truly a blight on this earth. Uh, I was slightly too old for Backstreet Boys, so um, I saw those as an affront. But I could understand the appeal for uh, people younger than I. Uh, as I replied to Brett on the Patreon, people can go back and watch Toy Pizza episode 30, if you can believe it. I mean, how many episodes of Toy Pizza are there? 332 episodes. Uh, very early episode 30 is on the best fast food toys, and I think it still holds up largely well. Um, now, obviously, I, I haven't been incredibly active in fast food toys in, I mean, probably since I left Manhattan, to be honest. There's just, there's no fast food around these parts. Uh, but I, I still think the classics from the late 80s, early 90s are probably as good as they get. Um, but we got some good feedback, too, from the patrons, so let's, uh, let's check out what people said. Um, Roan says, the bad guy from Mulan, uh, and the bad guy from Danny Phantom that would pop apart and had a little green goopy dude in him. I, I was too old for either of those, but they sound right up my alley. Brett agrees the Mulan villain was excellent. Uh, creature from the back la Black Lagoon. Uh, McDonald's Changeables, the sort of takeoff on Transformers. There's a couple series of those. Those are fantastic, especially the early robot ones. Uh, Lance says Arby's Looney Tunes figures. They're made of hard rubber. These I'm not familiar with. Um, 
but yeah, I think, you know, I, I still stick to the Warner Brothers, Looney Tunes characters that would put on superhero outfits of The Flash and Batman. I, I think those are just great, and I really liked them. So, uh, you know, I, I think I kind of, I got to stick to my guns on that one. Recently, I have collected a rather obscure line, also from Arby's. Uh, there was a Speed Racer relaunch in, uh, I want to say, the late 90s, maybe early aughts. And these are, to be honest, pretty hideous figures, but they are almost three and three quarter inch scale. They're pretty stationary, uh, very goofy, but you know what? I kind of like them. I'm into them. So, um, you know, that's that gets honorable mention. I don't think it's quite the best of the best, but... There are a lot of them out there that uh, maybe people haven't seen. Oh, actually, uh, I did go down a rabbit hole with fast food toys during the pandemic, particularly for Action Man UK. Now, overseas and in European and even, uh, I think, Australian markets, Action Man is a pretty big brand, and there have been several fast food iterations of these figures. And these are really fantastic. And some of them are proper three and three quarter inch articulated action figures. It's quite stunning. Recently, when I did um, blind box crates from the workshop, I threw in a bunch of my spare Action Man McDonald's toys that are only UK or Europe. And hopefully those went to good homes and people appreciate them because they are kind of hard to come by. Next up, we got a question from Lance Tomimoto. I'm weirdly becoming obsessed with Hacker Man. What's your favorite hack release so far? Mine is Dugul, with Turbo Atoll right on his heels from your official releases. My absolute favorite Hacker Man in my collection is a Firefly camo Hacker Man custom I bought from Charlie Wrighton that he made from the original Magma Hacker Man. Um, it's kind of a shame that a Magma Hacker Man got repainted, given that uh, there is a sort of gray base body Hacker Man that is almost perfectly the color of uh, Firefly, which with a little paint would very easily um, sort of uh, make a pretty convincing custom. This is the base body that was included with uh, Cross Skulls version three or four, I forget the exact designation, but uh, that is uh, pretty spot on for Firefly colors. As far as my favorite, I think it's hard to kind of beat uh, the Turbo Atoll version. I think it's just a, it's a great color scheme. Back over to the Top Secret Discord, which you can only access by being a member of patreon.com slash jessiedastasio. We've got a couple questions here. People are going Blade Runner crazy. Wolfman Toys wants to know, can we have more Blade Runner? It's the only toy line we'll never get officially. And the Robot Assassin wants to know, what would my role be in the world of Blade Runner? Um, so Wolfman, you know, it's important to remember the uh, recent release, if it reminds anybody of anything else, it's, it's clearly unintentional and is a most toys design, not a, not a toy pizza eerie theory design so uh you know any lawyers that need to file any c and d's they can go right to the most toys you can find them on instagram um all kidding aside i i think largely people have the tools 
they need to expand Lance into having more cohort. Uh, I don't know if we will have specific releases tailored to such a world, but I think there's enough material out there to kind of uh, point people in the right direction in terms of customs and, and building and, and things like that. Um, yeah, I think that's that's a pretty succinct way to put it. Uh, I would also say what role would I have in the world of Blade Runner? Obviously, I would be a toy designer and probably working uh, on contract for J.F. Sebastian. Another question from the Robot Assassin. What other Nintendo video games do you want to see as theatrical animated films? Uh, it seems like Legend of Zelda is the next logical step, although I would encourage them to have Katsuya Tarada as the sort of character and costume designer on that film. Uh, well, I, you know, I love Breath of the Wild and things like that, and that is probably what the adaptation is going to be. I do think there's an interesting, you know, ground zero story you could tell about the very first Zelda game that, um, you know, with Tarada's sort of vision as he expressed it through the artwork in Nintendo Power, I think would be pretty captivating and pretty compelling. Um, so we will see if, if that ever comes to fruition, but uh, as you've all probably guessed, we are at the beginning of an avalanche of CGI video game movies. This is going to be the next decade of films, and most of them are going to be pretty terrible, but given that Mario's tracking at a billion dollars box office, uh, this is where everybody's focus is going to turn almost immediately, so prepare for a deluge of shit. On the topic of video games, I have been, of course, playing the Resident Evil 4 remake. Um, it's pretty stellar. I mean, it's pretty great. It's everything you kind of want in a remake. There are some omissions. There are certain sequences and boss fights that are not included. Um, but generally, it's it's fantastic. I think that the, the Resident Evil engine that, you know, Resident Evil Village and others uh, have sort of been made through is pretty great. And um, I read a review that said, you know, for the author playing Resident Evil 4 was a, a ritual. Every few years they went back to it or they just bought whatever the new version was. And that's certainly been the case for me. Um, but they considered now when they feel nostalgic and they want to play Resident Evil 4, they're going to go to this remake over the originals. And I kind of agree with that logic. I think it's improved upon the formula in many, many ways. So, uh, I've just been having a great time playing it. If you guys aren't playing it, you should definitely do it. I just unlocked the Infinite Rocket Launcher, so I might do uh, some streaming and show you guys how much fun it is to just fuck everything up with an RPG. Um, but uh, it's a good one, and it's also, you know, it's not a line that we've ever had proper 4-inch figures for. Uh, there's been some pretty good stationary figures and uh, candy toys and things like that, but really we've never quite had a proper Resident Evil 4. Not that I'm going to embark on that, but it is just one of those weird anomalies that's been missing from the, uh, you know, the, the canon of uh, action figures. Final couple questions before we head out for today. Thomas Jonte, New Death's Head had me thinking it was Lloyd from Culpra at a quick glance. Have you read it or any of Michael Fife's stuff? Or Michelle Fife, sorry. 
Um, I have more than read his stuff. I would say I'm an incredible fan. And I actually talked with Michelle uh, briefly about doing toys. Now, we couldn't sort of reach a consensus or an agreement, so it never happened. But there was a very small window in which there were some very serious discussions about uh, doing Copra figures in the Night of the Slice uh, Glio style. Um, but uh, sadly, it did not come to pass. So, um, you know, you can throw that one into the, uh, the folder of near misses and, uh, you know, chances at greatness for uh, this great big project of ours. But, um, you know, I think he's uh, pound for pound probably one of the best uh, younger comic artists out there. He does have a Patreon people could follow. I don't know how active he is on it. I, I believe I follow him, but uh, I think he might do one post a, a month or something like that. You can also get uh, commissions from him through the Patreon at a certain level. So, um, you know, if, if anyone uh, is big fans of his work, definitely recommend checking out his Patreon. Also, um, I really liked his G.I. Joe Sierra Madre book. Uh, I thought that was pretty fantastic. Just generally a super talented guy. I, I, I If you've never seen his work, uh, I would say start at Copra. I think that's a good sort of uh, jumping off point. There's a bunch of volumes to read at this point. And uh, his artwork is really quite unique, quite great. It's uh, very kinetic. I think he uses a lot of Sumi-E brush pens. Um... And uh, just generally, I enjoyed. I, I I sort of think of Copra as, you know, a kid playing with a bunch of different action figures. You know, he's got his Toy Biz Doctor Strange figure, and he's got a, uh, you know, uh, some superpowers figures in the mix. And these are kind of the uh, unique characters and creations one might come up with, having had a childhood like that. So uh, I think it's. Uh, Pretty excellent work, and, and I do recommend people check it out. Final question for today's episode from Philip Barrara. What is your favorite love song or songs? My personal favorites are Swept Away by Christopher Cross, and It Might Be You by Stephen Bishop. Both songs I've loved for years, and they both lined up perfectly with the circumstances that led to my significant other and I getting together. Congratulations, uh, Philip Barrara. Um... You know, I had to go back and pull up an old Spotify playlist here. And uh, th these are kind of... <laughs> these are kind of really depressing songs, now that I'm looking at it. But um, a couple of them are uh, Chelsea Hotel, Leonard Cohen. I think that's a great, great song. Dream Awake from The Frames. That's pretty phenomenal. Eternal Flame, The Bangles. Um... Skinny Love, Bon Iver, uh, Spiritualize, so many great love songs from Spiritualize, Broken Heart, and I Didn't Mean to Hurt You, uh, I Didn't Mean to Hurt You being the song that kind of got me into Spiritualize in a big way, uh, also Heart Cook's Brain by Modest Mouse, an older track of theirs, that's a pretty great one, um, I, uh, I stand by these picks, this, this is probably a playlist from more than 10 years ago. But I think, uh, I think I stand by that. If you want an entire album that is fantastic love songs, Georgia Chalmers, uh, her name is spelled J-O-R, 
J-A. Um, she's phenomenally talented. I found out about Georgia Chalmers from seeing Roxy Music and Brian Ferry in concert. And she's the young, very uh, young, compared to Brian Ferry, uh, saxophone player. But she's also an incredible uh, musician, multi-instrumental musician, and does a lot of synth songs. Her album, Midnight Train, is fantastic and uh, truly a great uh, sort of love song. Uh, the entire thing is, is, uh, is stacked full of them. A couple others that come to mind... Uh, that are kind of literal love songs. Playground Love by Air, fantastic, beautiful song. And Pink Love by uh, Blonde Redhead, uh, also the name of one of the variations of Hobbs, for people that may not have picked up on that. Um, I, I think that's a pretty good smattering. I'm sure I'm forgetting some pretty crucial, pretty key ones there, but... Um, you know, I've given you some homework. You can go listen to these. Tell me if you agree or think I'm crazy. Uh, but with that, I think we are done for today. I hope everybody enjoyed the comic story and the mini drop that happened this week. I hope everybody went in big on the O'Neill drop. Some fantastic figures in that. And uh, I think we're good here. We're going to have Z-Star 7 play us out today. And the only thing left to say is pizza out. Demon, you must do the most.